But tonight, uh, our text is 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And, oh, I am so pumped about the text we have tonight in front of us. This, it just, it doesn't get much better than this in the whole Bible. I'm telling you that right now. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul is continuing on a theme that in some ways is strange. In some ways, it should strike us as strange that the Apostle Paul would have to defend his ministry before the Corinthian Christians. I mean, this is the Apostle Paul. What does he have to explain to them? What does he have to defend? Yet he was under attack by many of the Corinthian Christians, and here he's ready to uh, defend and describe and to talk about his ministry before them. So 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, Therefore... Since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Paul tells us several things in these two verses about how he preached his gospel, how he practiced his ministry. The first thing he tells us, is that he preached his gospel boldly. He says, since we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. When Paul considered the greatness of his calling, it gave him the heart to face his difficulties. You know, oftentimes in the Christian life, we lose heart because we do not consider how great a calling God has given us in Jesus. Every once in a while, you pick up the paper and you hear about some of these crazy contests that people have and And one time I heard about a contest that some uh, vehicle manufacturer was having, I think Toyota trucks or something like that, where they put a truck out, and if you could keep your hand on that truck for longer than anybody else, continual contact with it, uh, longer than anybody else, then you got to keep the truck. And so there were people who had it all planned out, and you know there was a guy who stayed there for a week, 10 days. And one by one, people would drop a lot. But this one guy was determined, I'm going to keep my hand on this truck and, and win it. And then you think, well, you know, for him it was worth it, right? Considering the greatness of what he's trying to get. I mean, a, a brand new, a free truck, that's something, right? He's willing to undergo some pain or some hardship or some difficulty for that. Paul says, listen, since we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. When I consider what God can do through me and what God uh, wants to accomplish through this ministry, I'm not going to lose heart. The idea behind that Greek word for lose heart is that of a faint-hearted coward. And Paul says, that's not the way I'm going to be. He says, I'm going to do what God's called me to do, and I'm not going to do it with a faint heart. So he says, therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, I love that, Paul preached his gospel humbly. He knew that his glorious calling to ministry was not due to his own works. It was as we have received mercy. You know, mercy by its very nature is undeserved. If you've been given mercy, it means because you don't deserve it. And Paul recognized that in the ministry. Now notice this in verse 2, he goes on to say, But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Paul preached his gospel boldly, he preached it humbly, but he also preached his gospel honestly. When he says, not deceitfully, it's a verb that means to dilute or adulterate. 
Paul says, listen, I didn't preach a concealed gospel, I didn't preach a corrupted gospel, or I didn't mix the message with human ingenuity or a watered-down accommodation to an audience. Paul's saying, I preached you an honest gospel. Now, might I say that many preachers in our present age, they fail on this exact point. They have the true gospel. I mean, they're preaching from the Bible, and the true gospel is right in front of them. They have it but they add to it things of human ingenuity, things of human wisdom. Sometimes they think it's uh, going to uh, help the Word of God. They think, well, you know, if I just add a little bit of this, add a little, I'll add a little of this, this pop psychology, I'll add a little bit of this, I'll add a little bit of that, a little bit of other things, I'll help it out. Paul says, no, I didn't do it deceitfully. I didn't dilute or adulterate the Word of God. Friends, they're still doing, when they add to the Word of God, even when they add to it because of the best motives, they're doing what Paul would never do. They're handling the Word of God deceitfully. Spurgeon said, Certain preachers tell us that they must adapt truth to the advance of the age, which means that they must murder it and fling its dead body to the dogs, which simply means that a popular lie shall take the place of an offensive truth. Friends, Paul says, I have no part of it. I have no part of that. I didn't give you the word of God in craftiness. I didn't give you the word of God in deceitfulness. No way. I gave it to you, notice verse 2, but by manifestation of the truth. His gospel was an openly true gospel. Anybody could look at what Paul preached and see the openly revealed truth of it. Friends, that's how it should be in every pulpit. There's no hidden messages, no hidden meanings, no one word meaning one thing, but uh, to another person it really means another thing. No standing before people and debating on what the word is really means or anything like that. Here it is, it's open, it's right on the front. There's nothing trying to be hidden. Here it is by the manifestation of the truth. And Paul says, look at verse 2, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Paul says, I preach to you a gospel of integrity. Anybody could look at Paul's gospel and look at his ministry and judge it by their own conscience and see that it was full of integrity. Now, you know, some people might attack Paul by their words, and some people might attack Paul by their actions, but Paul knew that both his ministry and his message would find approval in a man's conscience, even if they wouldn't admit it. You know what that's like, don't you? You might be criticizing somebody or ragging on them, but your conscience tells them they're right. Paul says, I'm right in their conscience, even if they wouldn't admit it. Paul says, commending myself to every man conscious, but I love what he says there at the end of verse 2, in the sight of God. Paul preached his gospel before God. Now, it was important for Paul to know that every man's conscience would approve of the manner of his ministry. That's fine. But to him, it was far more important to know that what he did was right in the sight of God. You know, every preacher has a higher audience than the people who are sitting before him. He's preaching in the sight of God. And if that preacher only cares about pleasing or making happy the human audience that sits before him, and if he's not interested in doing what's right in the sight of God, then there's something very uh, lacking in that preacher's ministry. Now, it's interesting because Paul goes on, and in this chapter, he's going to reflect on his suffering. But I think it's important for us to understand the point that Paul has made in the first few verses, that he's made it clear that he is not suffering because he's an unfaithful minister of the gospel. Paul says, I'm not an unfaithful minister. 
I've renounced the hidden things of shame. I'm not walking in craftiness. I'm not handling the word of God deceitfully. You see, it would have been easy for Paul's enemies to claim he suffers so much because God is punishing him because he's unfaithful. But that wasn't the case at all. Now, was Paul's gospel pretty glorious? Yeah. But here's a question. Why don't more people respond to such a glorious gospel? I've heard people ask that question. I've heard people that aren't Christians frame it in those terms. They say, listen, if Christianity is so true, then why doesn't everybody believe it? Why not? I mean, if it's so obvious, if it's so true, then why doesn't everybody believe it? Well, Paul's going to tell you why, beginning at verse 3. He says, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God, should shine on them. Friends, if people do not respond to this glorious gospel, it isn't Paul's fault or it isn't the gospel's fault. Only those who are perishing miss the message. You see that in verse 3? It is veiled to those who are perishing. I like what it says in the old King James Version. It's veiled to the lost, to those who are lost. What a terrible word, isn't it? To be lost. Friends, that's what the Bible says. You are, if you're separated from Jesus Christ, you're lost. Think of that little child, you know, in the big department store around Christmas time, and there's hundreds and thousands of people everywhere, and he's gotten separated from his mom or his dad, and there he is, he's lost. And he feels so alone, so desperate. You know, for a while, he might think it's fun. For a while, he might, oh, this is great. I don't have mom telling me not to goof around with these toys anymore. I could do whatever I want. But sooner or later, it's going to catch up to him. The horrible truth that he's lost. And he'll never find mom unless somebody helps. Friends, do you realize that without Jesus Christ, we are lost? Spurgeon well said, according to the text, he believes, he that believes not on Jesus Christ is a lost man. God has lost you. You're not his servant. The church has lost you. You're not working for the truth. The world has lost you, really. You yield no lasting service to it. You have lost yourself to right, to joy, to heaven. You are lost, lost, lost. It is not only that you will be lost, but that you are lost, lost even now. Friends, isn't it horrible to be lost? And who are these lost people? Take a look here in verse 4. Whose minds the God of this age has blinded. Friends, those who are perishing, those who are the lost, those for whom the gospel is veiled have been blinded by Satan, who is the God of this age. Now, let me explain something to you here. Very important for us to consider in this. It does not mean that the lost are innocent victims of Satan's blinding work. There they are, trying the best they can to seek God in sincerity and truth. They want the Lord. They long for Jesus. But mean old Satan has blinded their eyes so that they can't get what they really want from God, and that's to find the Lord. No, that's not how it works at all, is it? Quite to the contrary. Friends, they are blinded by Satan, but Satan's work upon them is not the only reason they are blinded. 
John 3.19 says, And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Though men love the darkness, though men choose the darkness, Satan still works to keep them blinded to the glorious gospel of light and salvation in Jesus. And did you notice what it is that's blinded? Take a look at verse 4. Whose minds the God of this age has blinded. It is the minds of the unbelieving that have been blinded. Now, of course, Satan also works upon the heart. Of course, Satan works upon the emotions of the lost. But his main battleground is the mind. You know, a lot of times people think of Satan putting thoughts into the minds of people. And I suppose that he can suggest thoughts to the mind of anybody. But Satan's most effective work is done by keeping thoughts out of people's minds. He just doesn't want you to think that. You know, Satan would have you think about anything except the, the eternal truths of God. It doesn't matter. So he wants to keep our minds off of things. He wants to blind us to certain things. And friends, notice where he does this. It's in the battleground of the mind. I wonder if we can't see a strategy of Satan in our own generation to make people think less and learn less and use their minds less than ever before. This is why God uses the chosen word to transmit the gospel. Because what does the word transmit? What does the word touch when it comes to it? It touches our minds. And the word of God can touch the minds that the God of this age has blinded. By the way, isn't it interesting, verse 4, where he talks about the God of this age? Isn't that an interesting title for Satan? Used nowhere else in the scriptures, although Jesus did call Satan the prince of this world. Friends, do you see the point there? Satan is the God of this age. No, not in the ultimate sense. You see, in the ultimate sense, the Bible says, the earth is the Lord's and all the fullness therein. The earth belongs to the Lord. It doesn't belong to Satan. I love that hymn, this is my father's world. It belongs to God. But there's a sense, very real sense, in which Satan is the God of this age. You know why? He's the popularly elected representative of humankind. We just had election yesterday, right? Let me tell you, in the hearts of... Boy, that was a hearty amen. People think we elected Satan yesterday. All the humankind elects Satan as the popularly elected ruler every day, don't we? Of course we do. You realize that when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, Satan offered to Jesus a dominion over all the kingdoms of this world, and Jesus did not contest Satan's ownership of those kingdoms. Jesus didn't say, well, they're not yours to give, Satan. Jesus never contested it. Friends, the satanic forces have a measure of sovereignty over this world, but not an ultimate sovereignty. Now again, notice this verse 4. Whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe. Whose minds can Satan blind? Those who do not believe. Friends, are you tired of having your mind blinded by the God of this age? Then put your trust in Jesus and who he is and what he's done for you. Then Satan can't blind you anymore. Well, I don't get it. No, I have to have my eye. I, Satan's blinding me and I can't trust until... Uh, no, just trust. Well, I don't know. I, I don't know how to trust. Just trust. 
Well, I, I don't know. What can I do? Just trust in Jesus Christ right now tonight. Take his word as true. Now, of course, this is true in an ultimate sense, and this is the ultimate sense in which Paul means it, as unto our salvation, is it not? But isn't it true in the experience of our Christian life, too? Haven't you noticed that there's certain areas in your life where Satan can blind you? You know what you need to do in that area? You need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and what he says about your life in that area. You need to trust him in it. Then Satan can't blind you anymore. The God of this world is able only to blind the minds of the unbelieving. Refusing to believe is the secret and the reason of blindness that happens to men. Notice this verse 4. Who do not believe, lest the gospel of the glory of Christ should shine on them. To be saved is to see the glory of Christ. Therefore, Satan directs his energies into blinding us from ever seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And let me uh, counsel you on this here tonight. This should greatly affect the way that you pray for the lost. You understand? Do you know what the problem is with the lost? Their eyes have been blinded. You need to pray and ask God to shine his light upon them to bind the blinding of Satan and to give faith to overcome the unbelief that invites that blinding. That's what God can do to to bring a person to salvation. You know, I can't help but read verse 4 where it says, whose minds the God of this age is blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. I cannot read that without thinking about Paul when he wrote it. I wonder if tears weren't streaming down his face because Paul could say more than just about any man could, that's me. That was me. Remember what happened to Paul on the road to Damascus when he was there to persecute Christians, to kill them in the city of Damascus? He's riding along and all of a sudden a light shines from heaven. A light shines and he's blinded. And then God is doing this work in his life. And then a Christian man named Ananias lays hands on him. And the scales drop from Paul's eyes. And he can suddenly see Paul knew exactly what it was like to have a literal blindness that was healed. And to have his eyes both spiritually and physically open to see the glory of Jesus Christ. Paul knew that's me. It can be us too. Verse 5. For we do not preach ourselves Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul is talking to us about the topic of his preaching. He's talked at the end of verse 4 about the gospel of the glory of Christ. And he says, let me tell you how I preach that gospel, Paul says. I want to tell you that when I preach that gospel, I do not preach myself. That's what Paul would tell us. You know, when Paul climbed into the pulpit or stood before an audience, it was not to preach himself. He wasn't important. He was not the focus. Jesus was. So Paul could strongly say, we do not preach ourselves. Instead, what was the focus on? Christ Jesus the Lord. He's the one to preach about. Listen, if you walk away from the message knowing the preacher better, but not Jesus better, something's wrong there. 
you know that not everybody who opens a Bible and starts talking is preaching Christ Jesus the Lord. Do you realize that many well-intentioned preachers, I'm not questioning their intentions, but many well-intentioned preachers are actually preaching themselves instead of Jesus. Where's the focus? If the focus is on funny stories or the touching life experiences of the preacher, he might just be preaching himself. Oftentimes, and I've noticed this, people love it when the preacher preaches himself. If a preacher wants to endure himself to his audience, he needs to uh, say a lot of revealing stories from his life. What it does, I'll be very honest with you, is it builds a false intimacy between him and his audience. It makes the audience feel we know him. When really you don't know him, you just know what he's telling you. Right? You don't know him, you just know what he's telling you. But it can really endear the audience to the preacher, and and the preacher can feed off of that. It's wonderful, it's revealing, it seems intimate, it's oftentimes very entertaining, and it's tempting for the preacher, because he sees how people respond when he focuses the messages on himself. But the bottom line is this, my friends, the preacher himself can't bring you to God and save your eternal soul. Only Jesus Christ can, so he better be preaching Jesus. You could come away saying, oh, what a wonderful preacher. Oh, we know him. Oh, we have her. Oh, it's just, whoa, that. And you trust in that preacher and you will go to hell. That's all there is to it. Does that mean it's wrong for a preacher to tell a joke? Does that mean it's wrong for a preacher to use a story from his own life? Of course not. Of course it's not wrong. Oftentimes, illustrations from the preacher's own life or humor, this, oftentimes it can be very effective and can help the preacher preach Christ. That's not the issue. It's all a matter of proportion, isn't it? It's like saying, uh, is it all right to put salt in the soup? Well, of course it is. But if you put in too much, you spoil it. Sure, some seasons it wonderfully. But if you put in too much, then you've got a problem. And friends, if week after week, too much of the preacher is in the sermon, it's wrong. Greek scholar A.T. Robertson said that the preaching of oneself was, I love this, surely as poor and disgusting a topic as the preacher can find. I just want to say, preacher, don't you have a message greater than yourself? Of course we do have a message of Jesus Christ. I want you to notice this too. It wasn't only that Paul did not preach himself, He also did not preach a gospel of moral reform. He did not preach a list of rules that you have to follow to be right with God. He preached Jesus. That's what needs to be preached. Not jump through this hoop and you can be, here's the list, here's this, here's a, no, preach Jesus. That's what people need to hear. Friends, people come to Jesus and what happens? Their life changes and they want to obey God. The law is written in their hearts when they fall in love with Jesus. So Paul says here, verse 5, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. Now, when Paul would present himself, this is how he would present himself. Not as a Lord, not as a master, but simply as your servants for Jesus' sake. Friends, it's important for us to consider 
that Paul considered himself a servant to the Corinthian Christians for Jesus' sake. Not for his own sake, or not even for the sake of the Corinthian Christians. You see, because if Paul's concern for serving the Corinthian Christians, if he was doing it for the sake of himself, or if he was doing it for the sake of the Corinthians themselves, it wouldn't last, or it would turn fleshly pretty easy. That's what it's like when you serve others for their sake, or when you serve others for your own sake. But when you serve others for Jesus' sake, then it's a glorious thing, isn't it? Then all of a sudden, when they don't appreciate it, that's right, I wasn't doing it for your sake anyway. That's one of the purest ways to, to measure. How, how do you love it when you serve others and they don't appreciate it? That shows you who you're really serving, doesn't it? Well, I'll never do that for them again. Good, praise the Lord. Next time, do it for them for Jesus' sake. And he'll reward you. Paul had the right attitude in this. I love how he puts it in verse 6 here. He says, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who is shown in our hearts. Paul is saying, The Lord God who created light in the physical world can fill your heart with spiritual life, even if you are blinded by the God of this age. Friends, I want you to know that God's work, uh, that Satan's work, I should say, of blinding is great. But God's work of bringing light is even greater. When this whole creation started with nothing but darkness and God commanded, let there be light. And there was light. God can do the same thing in your life. God can bring light in the midst of utter darkness. Paul's remembering how the world was created. By the way, isn't it interesting? Paul believes Genesis chapter 1 just like it says. You know, Genesis chapter 1, verse 3 says, Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And you know what? Paul believed that's how it really happened. Isn't that amazing? He, he believed that's just how it happened. That God commanded there be light, and there was light. And he says, He can do it in your life, too. Oh, and I love it, too, he says. Who has caused, command light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Isn't that a way to describe every Christian? Someone with the light of God shining in their life. Anybody see anything shining in your heart, in your life? Honestly now. People look at you and would they be surprised to know that you're a Christian? Like, wow, man, you're a Christian? Boy, I never would have guessed. Man, I thought you were an undertaker. What's that? <laughs> Nothing shining about you. Man, that's not where the Lord wants you to be. It's a good way to describe every Christian. People with shining hearts. God has shown in our heart, and it should show in shining lives for Jesus Christ. He goes on here to say in verse 6, to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Now, what is it exactly that God has shown into our hearts? It's the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Friends, every Christian should have some knowledge of the glory of God. If you're a Christian, you should be able to say, I know something of the glory of God. If you don't know anything of the glory, if you, uh, shining light, glory in our heart, wh I, what's he talking about? Friends, if, that's what, if you know nothing of this, then you should seek God earnestly that he would shine his glory and the glory of his knowledge into your heart. Oh, friends, and notice this, he says here in verse 6, who has shown in our hearts 
to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. God has given us the light of this knowledge of God, and He has given you that responsibility to get it out. He shined it in you so you could shine it out. Instead of shining it on, as some Christians do, forget it. He put it in you. The Lord wants it to come out. That's the whole thing, friends, is that God gives us this light so that we can proclaim it out, shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. You know, imagine for yourself a man in a sunny room, and he's enjoying the sunshine in the sunny room. It's coming through the windows. It's so good. Oh, I love it in there. It's so warm. It's so sunny. He goes, this sunshine's so great. I've got to keep it all for myself. And so he says, I'll shut all the curtains so that none of the light gets out. So he shuts all the curtains, and all of a sudden, he puts himself back into darkness. Friends, when you try to hoard up the light within yourself, you're going to lose it. You've got to let it shine out of you. God's shown it into you. Let God shine it out of you now. And notice here, verse 6, to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We come to the knowledge of the glory of God by seeing it in the face of Jesus. You know, God has given us a picture, a display, a representation of His glory, and that's His Son, Jesus Christ. You want to see the glory of God in action? Look at Jesus. You want to see the glory of God speaking? Read the words of Jesus. That's what Jesus wants you to see. You know, Jesus prayed that we would see His glory, the glory of the God the Father. In John 17, 24, He said, praying to his Father in heaven. He asked that they may behold my glory which you have given me. Jesus wants to reveal his glory to you. By seeing the face of Jesus, God will shine his glory in you and through you. Friends, isn't that fantastic? God giving you, God shining his glory in you. And you look at yourself and say, man, I don't know if I'm worthy of that. I don't know if I'm a fit container for the glory of God. Well, you know what? You are and you aren't. Let's take a look at verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. You know what God did with this great treasure? He put it in a very humble container. I mean, this treasure. The treasure is the greatness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the treasure of the glory of God made evident through that gospel. It's the very light of God, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, reflected in the face of Jesus Christ. Friends, I want you to understand, this is the greatest treasure in all of creation. The glory of God is the greatest treasure in all the universe. There's nothing greater And God has taken this treasure, this surpassing treasure, and what has he done with it? He says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. That's us. When God made the body of the first man, what did he make it out of? The dust of the ground, earth, dirt. When Paul considers us as earthen vessels, he's not disparaging the body. He's not saying it's just kind of some empty receptacle for the soul. Instead, Paul is simply comparing the value of God's light and glory to the value of what he's chosen to put that light and glory into. And when you compare the two, 
Aren't you blown away that God has decided to put that kind of treasure into a clay pot? That's what he's done. Most magnificent jewels, most glorious coins, you know, riches untold. And what do you do? You go home and you put it in a clay pot. Well, no, you shouldn't do that, should you? That's what God did. Friends, who is worthy? Who is worthy to be a container for God's glory? The smartest person isn't smart enough. The purest person isn't pure enough. The most spiritual person isn't spiritual enough. The most talented person isn't talented enough. We are all just clay pots holding an unspeakably great treasure. Because we're just earthen vessels. You know, they had many different kinds of vessels in the ancient world. They had earthen vessels. They had glass vessels. They had metal vessels. Earthenware vessels. That was the everyday kind of thing. Easily chipped. Easily broken. You know what you did with an earthen vessel vessel when it broke? You threw it away. You didn't fix it. You just tossed it. They were cheap. They had little value. And God chose to put His light and His glory into the everyday dishes, not into the fine china. Aren't we almost immediately drawn to the things that have the best packaging? You know, in product development, they'll spend millions of dollars developing the package while the product itself is just a piece of junk. But who cares? If it has the right package, it'll sell. That way with people, right? You know, if things are packaged right, you'll buy it, you'll believe it, you'll like it without taking a look at what's inside the package. But isn't it true that oftentimes the best gifts have very unlikely packages? Friends, that's how it is. You know, that's how it was with Jesus. Jesus, the God of all creation, the one who said, let there be light, and there was light. Jesus, who dwelled in the ivory palaces of heaven, when he came to this earth, you think at least God would have put him in the package of the most glorious, resplendent, rich, powerful, influential man who ever walked this earth. Wouldn't you put him in that kind of package? No. God put him in the humblest package. You know, if... If God wasn't embarrassed, we would have been. Lord, don't, you know, come on. Make it a little fancier than that. But Jesus was not embarrassed to live as an earthen vessel, and God was not embarrassed to use clay pots like us. Why? See that in verse 7? That the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. See, that's why God puts such great treasure into such weak vessels. That the greatness of the power may be of God and not of us. So that it would be evident to anyone who had eyes to see that the work was being done by the power of God, not by the power of the vessel. And can I tell you something? It's risky to use earthen vessels. Friends, God could use heavenly vessels. God could use angels to shine forth His light. God could use angels to preach His gospel. But He doesn't. Sure, he could use perfect vessels that are safe, but they would bring glory to themselves. They would say, well, no wonder that person got saved. Look, an angel preached the gospel to him. Well, of course. But when God uses earthen vessels, yes, they're risky, but they can bring profound glory to him because they say, man, that must be the Lord that did that work because look at that guy. It couldn't have been him. It had to be the Lord. Remember the story of Gideon in the Old Testament? There they are surrounding the Midianites. 
They got their trumpets. They're going to shout out and blow the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And they've got these, these torches, and the torches are put inside of clay pots. And when does the light shine forth? When the pots are broken. That's when it shines forth. You know, in the rest of the chapter, Paul's going to show how God breaks his clay pots so that the excellence of the power may be of God, not of us. Check it out, verse 8. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life is in you. Anybody want to be an apostle? Anybody want to follow in the footsteps of Paul? Here you go. Here's your job description. Hard-pressed, perplexed, persecuted, struck down. That's what Paul did. You think of that word hard-pressed. You know what it means literally in the original language? It has the idea of hunted. Paul was a wanted, hunted man because of who he was for Jesus. You know, in Acts chapter 23, 40 men conspired together to not eat or drink until they had murdered Paul. He knew what it was like to be a hunted man. Friends, he knew what it was like, but what does he say? He says, hard-pressed, but not crushed. Living as a hunted, wanted man means terrible stress, experienced every moment of the day, yet Paul was not crushed by this stress. He could still serve the Lord gloriously. So look at how he describes all the experiences in life. Hard-pressed, perplexed, persecuted, struck down. Paul's life was hard. And why was it hard? Because of his passionate devotion to Jesus Christ and his gospel. Paul, take it easy. Just be comfortable. Back off. Don't be so bold. Don't be so courageous. Paul says, forget it. Because when I'm hard-pressed, then I'm not crushed. When I'm perplexed, then I'm not in despair. When I'm persecuted, then I'm not forsaken. When I'm struck down, I'm not destroyed. I'd never know the second half if it weren't for the first half. Paul says, I know the power and the victory of Jesus in my life because I'm continually in situations where only the power and victory of Jesus will meet my need. You know, when we talk about this today, I could stand before you today and say, oh, Woe is me. Let me tell you about my life, brother. Oh, I'm hard-pressed. I'm perplexed. I'm persecuted. I'm struck down. And sometimes I feel like I am. Friends, when you or I talk about this, it's hard to get away from the idea that we're just kind of saying spiritual things. Because we live pretty comfortable lives and don't suffer much at all, really, do we? But can I remind you about something here? Everything Paul says, he says from a life that knows more suffering than not only you and I will know. Paul knew more suffering than anybody you'll ever know will know. He's not writing this from some ivory tower. He's not writing this from the life of some man who, they hurt my feelings. That's so crushing. Friends, he knows what it's like. 
This wasn't just theory to Paul. This was real life experience. And so what does he say? Look at verse 10. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested. Paul, like any Christian, he wanted the life of Jesus evident. Do you want the life of Jesus evident in you? Yes, you do. But Paul knew that that could only happen if he also carried about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. Well, I don't know about that. I'll just take the life. No, but don't you understand? There are some aspects of God's great work in our lives that can only come through trials, that can only come through suffering. Paul says he was always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. You know what that means? It means he felt that the death of Jesus was being worked spiritually inside of him. He's saying that not only the death of Jesus was a historical fact, and it was. Paul knew that, but that it was a spiritual reality in his life. Friends, the two go together. You know, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul speaks about the glory of knowing Jesus. Let me read it to you. He says, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Oh, isn't that great? Yes. Oh, I want to know the power of his resurrection. Yes, Lord, I want to know it. But what about the fellowship of his sufferings? What about being conformed to his death? But do you realize that there's certain fragrances in the life of the believer that God can only release when that vial is broken? So Paul rejoiced in knowing both the suffering and the glory because he knew that the two was connected. He goes on and he says in, in verse 11 that for we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Paul knew that the spiritual riches that he brought to the Corinthian Christians came in part through the death-like suffering that he endured in ministry. God made Paul more effective in ministry through his surfing, sufferings. Through his surfing. Wow, that's not suffering. Oh, friends, you get the point here. Sometimes we think that if someone is really spiritual, we think that if they're really used of God, then they're going to live in a constant state of victory. And we think victory means that life will always be easy. Right? Well, understanding what Paul says here lets us know that God's servants may experience death-like suffering. Not only that, God has a good and glorious purpose in allowing it. Look at it in verse 11. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh. And he goes on to say in verse 12, So then death is working in us, but life in you. Paul says, you know the sufferings I endure, Corinthian Christians? The sufferings that you think make me less spiritual? They're for your sake! It makes me a better minister unto you, Paul is saying. D. Campbell Morgan told the great story of a young preacher who was very impressive early in his ministry. And one time, Morgan had the young man speak at his church. And he was very impressive. And afterwards, uh, you know... Morgan did just what everybody does, just what all of you do. You know, out in the car after service, said to his wife, well, what would you think of the message? 
He said, gee, wasn't that wonderful? She said, yes. But quietly she added, but it'll be more wonderful when he has suffered. And Morgan added to this, he said, well, he suffered and it was more powerful. Friends, Paul says that the life he could bring the Corinthian Christians it was because death was working in him. And this is what he says in verse 12. Death is working in us, but life is in you. This is the irony. The Corinthian Christians despised Paul because of the great sufferings and because of what they thought were their great lives of victory. They had it comfortable and easy. Paul had it hard. Paul continues on in verse 13. He says, But since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke. We also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Now I think that Paul is hinting at a sarcasm here, my friends. Back in verse 12. Death is working in us, but life in you. And then he goes on in verse 13, 14, 15, he goes, we have faith, we have absolute faith in something going to happen, that, that God will raise us up. And notice what he says in verse 14, I hope you can catch the sarcasm here. Knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will raise us up with Jesus and present us with you. In other words, oh, you Corinthians, you're already raised up. You're already exalted, but we believe that God will raise us up someday up to your level, oh, Corinthian Christians. Paul's just trying to say, listen, I believe that God's going to raise us up. And I bet if he was being completely honest there, he'd say, and I don't know if I'm going to see all of you Corinthian Christians up there when I'm up, but I'll tell you, I know I'm going to be up there, and God will raise you up, and we'll all be together. Paul knew it. He said, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus. Paul knew it. So he didn't despair in his sufferings. He knew that every death-like trial was just the prelude to resurrection power. Do you want the resurrection power of Jesus Christ in your life? Hey, you've got to die before there's resurrection power, friends. I also like what Paul says in verse 13. We also believe and therefore speak. I think this is a great principle, that faith creates the testimony. Paul really believed that God had a purpose in his death-like sufferings, and he really believed and lived and experienced the resurrection life of Jesus. Therefore, he wasn't hesitant to speak about it. Friends, God ever puts you in a place where you can teach? If you don't believe it, don't teach it. Don't speak it. You don't believe it, don't speak it. But Paul says, we also believe and therefore speak. He goes on here in verse 15, and he points out, for all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. You know, I think Paul shows so much wisdom in verse 15. He shows both a near goal and a farther goal. All things are for your sakes. This was the immediate goal of Paul's ministry. His heart was to serve the Corinthian Christians and Christians in other cities. I'm serving you, Paul says. All things are for your sakes. But his ministry also had an ultimate goal. Look at the end of the verse. That it may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Ultimately, what was Paul motivated by? The glory of God. Now, some people forget the immediate goal. 
They forget that we're supposed to serve for the sake of... Listen, I, I know that I'm serving God when I'm preaching before you, but I'm here for your sake too. I can't just be all, oh, pie in the sky, super spiritual. I'll preach my sermon on the Lord. I don't care if it goes over your head, right? I'll just speak in fancy terms and 25, so you can't understand that. Hey, as long as it's pleasing to the Lord, then who cares? You know, hopefully someday you'll be spiritual enough to come along. No, then I'm not doing all things for your sakes. So if you forget the immediate goal, you can have a pie-in-the-sky super spirituality. But other people forget the, the ultimate goal. And what do they become? They become man-focused. It's all about the audience. It's all about pleasing you. It's all about making you laugh. It's all about making you happy. And you know what that'll lead to? The preacher will either become proud or discouraged. You either become proud because it's working, you'll either become discouraged because it's not. Friends, he can please the Lord through what he does. And I tell you, we end this chapter with verses 16, 17, and 18, and I like all that's gone before it in the first 15 verses, but these, these last three verses, this is like gold. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. Look at the first verse of the chapter. Paul says in the first verse of 2 Corinthians 4, Therefore, since we have this ministry as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. And then as he concludes the chapter in verse 16, he says, we do not lose heart. You see, Paul has described all the death-like sufferings he has to endure in the ministry. And it's like he's anticipating the question, how can you not lose heart? And he says, I'll tell you why I don't lose heart. I don't lose heart, therefore. Now, what does therefore mean? It means referring back to what was before. Paul has just explained that his death-like trials made for more effective, life-giving ministry for the Corinthian Christians. Knowing that made him not lose heart in the midst of trials and suffering says, I'm going to keep going because I know that it's doing something good in God's people. Secondly, it says, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. You know, I love this. Paul, Paul was a realist. Paul realized all that he went through in his life, all the, the persecution, all the trials, all the beatings he took. And he looked and he goes, you know what? I'm not getting any younger. And this stuff's taking a toll on me. This is tough. My outward man, it's perishing. How many of us can say amen to what Paul said right there? The outward man is perishing. But I wonder if all of us could say amen to what he says next. But the inward man is being renewed. Day. You see, another reason why Paul does not lose heart is because through all his suffering and all that takes a toll on the outward man, yet the inward man is being renewed and blessed. And that leads us to verse 17. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. You see that in verse 17? For our light affliction. Now, you know, when Paul writes our light affliction, I know what you immediately think. You're thinking, well, you know, 
Is he Paul light affliction? I wonder, Paul, if you've ever known any real trials. You know, Paul, let me tell you, your affliction might be light, Paul, but not mine. I mean, Paul, you just live in my trials for a while, huh? Then you wouldn't go around saying, my light affliction. If you only knew how I'm suffering, Paul, well, what I'm suffering, it's just plain unbearable, Paul. Can I tell you something here? Paul is not writing as a kindergartner in the school of suffering. Matter of fact, he had an advanced graduate degree. Paul was working on his third or fourth PhD in the school of suffering. Let me read to you from 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Stripes, prisons, beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, perils of waters, robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils of the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst and fastings often, in cold and nakedness. And those were just the physical outward sufferings. What about the spiritual burdens he bore and the spiritual attacks he faced? Listen, friends, this isn't some guy, well, you know, I've had a few problems here and there. This was a guy who knew affliction in his life. So when Paul writes our light affliction, we can know God means our light affliction. If Paul can say his affliction was light, what about ours? So why is our affliction light and not heavy? Look at verse 17. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment... Friends, the worst of it, by the measure of eternity, is but for a moment. Now, this is partially true in the sense that most of our troubles come and go. Isn't it true? I mean, look, whatever trouble you got right now, a year from now, you're probably not going to be dealing with the same thing. It'll come and go. This too shall pass, right? You know, and a lot of our troubles, they, they don't stick with us. But let's say it does. Let's say you lived... To be a hundred years old, and every day of your life you are afflicted with some pain, some suffering, some calamity. In the measure of eternity, it's but for a moment. Friends, why else is our affliction light and not heavy? Because of what God is accomplishing through our affliction. Look at it here in verse 17. Is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Scriptures are clear, my friends. Romans 8.17 says, If we indeed suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. You're not going to be glorified with the Lord without suffering with him in some way. It's not going to happen. You're looking for that suffering-free Christian life? It's not going to happen. God has things to work in your life that are only going to be accomplished by suffering. Glory is tied to suffering, and God will accomplish in us a glory far greater, far heavier than any affliction we have suffered here. Now, Paul is saying, go ahead, get it out. Put out the scale. Put all your afflictions on one side of the scale. Put them all there. Even the imagined ones. Put them there. Then go ahead and even put your thumb on that side of the scale. And then Paul says, let me place the weight of glory on the other side of the scale, and you're going to see what a light affliction you really have. Friends, our affliction is light. It's light compared to what other people are suffering. 
It's light compared to what we deserve. It's light compared to what Jesus suffered for us. It's light compared to the blessings we enjoy. It's light compared as we experience the sustaining power of God's grace. And it's light when we see the glory that it's leading to. We can really say with Paul, our light affliction. And then he says, you see that in verse 17? A far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. I think that's the problem sometimes. Sometimes it's not so much that you think that your afflictions are so heavy, but you think the glory is so light. The glory that's to come has weight. But we never consider it. We never consider the weight of that glory. And somehow it just gets things out of balance. And the afflictions seem so heavy, and the glory to come seems so light. No, my friends, but it's going to be heavy. You know, Paul is drawing on the Hebrew idea here when he says the weight of glory. It's interesting because the Hebrew word for glory, Chabad, it means weight. So he's like, the, the weight of glory, it's almost like saying the glory of glory. The weight of glory, it means heavy. And Paul says this weight of glory to come, oh, it far exceeds anything we experience here. Notice it says for 18, he says, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. <laughs> Friends, on the surface, doesn't that seem nonsense? We don't look at the things which we see. We look at the things we can't see. Now, of course, Paul isn't talking about look in, in the actual physical way of looking. He means to put your focus, your attention, your, your meditation upon it. He says, we don't look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. And Paul was saying this especially about his own life and ministry. In the world's eyes, Paul's life was an incredible failure. Do you realize that he was at the height of a career that would have reached much higher, and he left it all for a life of hardship, suffering, and persecution with an eventual martyrdom. But Paul recognized that the world only sees the outward, not the unseen, eternal things. And when we look at the things which are seen, all we see is our light affliction. And then it doesn't look very light. But when we look at the things which are not seen, then we see and appreciate God's eternal weight of glory. Now, let me leave you with a final thought here. Paul is not saying that all affliction automatically produces glory in us. No way, my friends. Don't you wish it was so? Don't you wish that there was just something automatic in suffering that produced glory? No, my friends. It's possible that the suffering you're going through right now isn't going to build any glory in you. Instead, it's going to make you miserable. It's going to make you bitter. It's going to make you self-focused. And it's going to destroy you. That's a possibility. You know what the difference is in verse 15? Excuse me, verse 18. If you look at the things which are seen, you set your focus there, that suffering can destroy you. But if you put your mind on the things of God and on the eternal things, then your suffering can produce in you an eternal weight of glory. God has things to work in our lives that can only be accomplished through affliction. And it's not that God loves to see us squirm. 
that he loves to see us like Jesus. The Bible says that Jesus learned obedience by the things which he suffered. If that was a fit tool to use in the life of the Son of God, it's a fit tool to use in our life. So we need to be able to be able to say with Paul, our light affliction. And to be able to say with him, I'm going to set my eyes on the things I can't see instead of the things that are right in front of my face. Let's pray and ask the Lord to do that. Father, uh, it's such a big order. It's such a, a high, glorious ground that we've been on, Lord. It's almost as if we, uh, we need some oxygen up here, Lord. But Father, I ask that you would build in our lives an appreciation of the eternal weight of glory. That you'd help us to see, Lord, how light our affliction really is. And that you'd glorify yourselves in our lives. Thank you, Lord. Help us, Lord, now as we worship. Set our heart and our mind on your things. We pray this in Jesus' name.